Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Well, I'm excited to join you guys. I feel yeah. like I've, I've finally made it. Now I get to be on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, we've had, uh, we've had some cool guests, and you'll certainly be an, a good addition to it. It'll be fun. Oh, Danny Vegas says hi. He's hanging out with me for the for the weekend. He's oh, cool. Yeah, he came to train me and get me out of my bad form habits. I started lifting weights at fifty, due in large part to Sean Baker's muscle headed ass. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't be I can't be letting him look better without his shirt than I do. So I'm gonna have to step it up. And so I got Danny Vega out here to train me for the weekend. Nice. Yeah. Well, you've, you're going in all with all the right tools then, I guess. So <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. And I also just ordered a, what is it? A concept two? Oh yeah. yeah it it mm-hmm. should be here tomorrow. And so I'm going to, I'm just going to go full Sean Baker and fuck it. <laughs> that's awesome. I, you know, I don't <laughs> hop on the concept two that, that often. Um, but I jumped on one when I was traveling just cause they had it at the, they had one at the hotel room just to be like, I wonder what, what Sean's feeling like in these 60 second bouts. And it's, it is no joke. Yeah. <laughs> you I get can all imagine. those muscles firing at once. It's like nothing rests during those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait to try it out. I'm excited. Yeah. So what kind of stuff do you, are you doing in the, with the weightlifting stuff? Is it a lot of the core lifts or? Yeah. Yeah. I started last month. So it's just, I'm just doing squats, deadlift, bench press, um, mm-hmm. you know, lat pulls, just big basic compound movements right now. And so I don't know if Danny will keep me doing that or if he'll start to get me more specialized, but uh, I've just been trying to wake up the ligaments and the tendons and the cartilage because they've kind of been, you know, I work on the farm and stuff. I'm very active and I play Mm -hmm. sports with my teenage daughters, but as far as any kind of active lifting, I haven't done that since my twenties. Yeah. You know, I, I'll, I'll do, I'll do some of the core lifts in the weight room not, I wouldn't say year round, but I try to keep them in there from time to time. And it's, it doesn't take long before like you realize that you haven't done it for a while and you do like one set and you're sore the next day. It's yep. <laughs> reminds you to stay on top of that stuff. Yeah. I've been, I've been trying to come at it kind of slowly and I've been doing it, you know, mm-hmm. not really stack a bunch of plates yet just trying to make sure I don't you know tear a rotator cuff muscle or, or tweak yeah the or yeah something. and get the form all dialed in and stuff right yeah. right right that's what Danny's here for to laugh at me and make me do the cro- <laughs> proper form <laughs> well it is funny how like when it, it can feel like you're doing everything right but if you like videotape yourself or someone watches you who's got a really good eye for it they can nitpick a whole bunch of little things and yep uh, cool. We're glad you have some solid support there. Sean's finishing, finishing that ribeye. Then he'll be, yeah, he must, you know, that might be true. He, he was a couple minutes late for a podcast, uh, earlier and he wasn't apologetic. He's just, yeah, guys, I had to finish the ribeye. 
no. <laughs> no, he's been busy with uh, the book and all that stuff. Um, I think uh, the other day we recorded a couple of podcasts and then he was on two or three additionally. So I'm just like all day just <laughs> yeah. being interviewed or doing the interviewing. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just got off an Instagram live with somebody. You might, I don't know. I mean, you guys are smashing the male demographic. But if you wanted to get more of the female demographic, this, this chick, her, her IG handle is grass-fed girl. Okay. And she's got multiple cookbooks and she started out paleo and then kind of the normal migration to keto. And now she's been carnivore for the last few months and is loving it. And so we, that's what we were just talking about is carnivore diet. She's got 81,000 on IG and I don't know what her other social media is, but she's huge. You know, I mean, her female demographics probably 80%. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we interviewed, um, uh, Vanessa, like her, I think her handle's ketogenic girl, and, and yep, she's yep. like that as well. She's got like a hundred some thousand followers, and definitely, yeah. um, definitely reaches I think the the female crowd quite effectively. So it's yeah. that's cool to see that side of it gaining momentum and oh, yeah. some kind of yeah. real good faces to it out there, kind of getting the message out. Absolutely, everybody wants to make carnivore a male thing, but it definitely is not, or should not be a male thing. The right. females are going to benefit in different ways, but, but just as much as we are. Mm-hmm. Cool. Sean, can hey, you hear Sean, us? What's up? Yeah, man. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Hey doc. Yeah, man. Hey doc. Only, how's it going? Man, good. The only, the only negative this damn carnivore diet is I got freaking meat stuck between my teeth. I just <laughs> <crushed> <laughs> we were yeah. making bets on whether you were late because you're finishing a ribeye. I, I got, I got tied up. <laughs> <laughs> tied up with a it's, good ribeye it's not going to chew itself so i mean York, so i had to do excused. it I had, to, I had to make a sacrifice it was either not eat the meat or or or, or make it on time and i made the i don't know the right decision i think <laughs> that's right yeah man, it's good having you on man you know it feels like i already know you because we've, we've kind of interacted so much but uh um are we recording zach we start recording? yeah mm-hmm. okay cool yeah you know we had, interesting, uh, we had an interesting dude on yesterday talking about myopia correct and that was kind of an interesting one and we had uh Bart, Bart Simmons, a rancher, he's talking about, you know, if, if they implement a tax, this is the thing that a lot of people don't understand. If they implement a tax, like, like what they were talking about, 34% tax on red meat, which is being bandied about at least in the European that, that will drive those guys, these, these independent family ranches, the guys are doing the grass-finished beef for us, out of business. And it'll all go to these big, giant, you know, global multinational companies that, that are just going to, you know, they, they will say, okay, we'll get all the beef uh, things, we'll do, and we'll, do, we'll continue to do it what some people would say, maybe not the best bait, you know, taking meat from Mexico and grinding it in there and who knows what the hell's happening. So that, that's something, but let me, um, so you wrote a book called lies. My doctor told me, right. I have not read that book. I apologize, but it's got a provocative title. So what the hell are the lies the doctor told us? Cause I want to know, so, I'm sure I told what? you too. So let, let's, let's, let's do that. And then we can get into some more stuff. Oh, absolutely. And so, I actually self-published it, what, a year and a half ago. It's only been on the market for a year and a half, and it's done pretty well for a self-published title. Uh, when I told Jimmy Moore my numbers, he's like, dude, that's really good. I can't believe you. That's self-published. And so now it's it's been picked up by Victory Belt Publishing, who I think you're working with, Sean, and they're going to re-release a, a kind of a second edition. Up, It's going to have five or six new chapters and uh, full color, you know, and it's going to be in all markets, not just on Amazon. And, and uh, Carl Franklin is going to be reading the audible version from the two keto dudes. And so I'm excited about that. But it, it started out as about 22 chapters, I think. 
and I had a lot of bigger, more important lies that I um, gave an entire chapter to. And then it's got a, this one chapter called Little White Lies, which is just all maybe 20 or 30 stupid little lies that people believe and that, more importantly, doctors believe. Because Sean will understand this. If your hairdresser tells you, oh, you should eat more whole grain, and you listen to her and you do that, that's your fault. She has no fiduciary responsibility to you, to your health, right? She's just your hairdresser. And so if you listen to her, then it's, it's buyer beware. Basically, that's your fault. But if a doctor, if a, if a licensed doctor or a licensed nutritionist or a dietitian, if they give you nutrition advice and it's wrong, that's why I called it lies my doctor told me, not medical myths or medical mistruths, because if you've got a fiduciary duty to your patient to tell the truth, and not only to tell it, but to know it, that's your job as a provider, and you don't do that, then I think it steps it up from a mistruth or a myth up to a lie. I think it's just a flat-out lazy lie that you don't know the truth, and so you're just giving your patients bunk advice that's actually making their health worse and not better. And so, so what, that's kind of the, the premise of the book. What are, what are some of the sort of the major ones just in general? I mean, not to, not to, to, to sort of spoil the punchline, but, you know, I just, you know, so, I, you know I know sure. there's a lot of them out there around nutrition that we, you and I both probably see eye to eye on, but there's probably a lot of things out there that. Yeah. You know, so I, 10, 10 years ago in my medical practice, Sean, I would recommend you need to eat more whole grains. And I fully believed that as a doctor, I believed that was true. I believed that the research back that up. I believe that their health would get better. And you can see the key word I'm using there over and over, believed. I didn't know that. I hadn't actually looked at the research. I just took it on faith that all these, you know, health gurus in the medical sphere were correct about that. And so I would tell my patients, you got to eat more whole grains. You need that fiber. You need all the, the nutrients that are in whole grains. And so, yeah, it turns out that's a big fat line. I've got a chapter devoted to the whole grain myth that human beings basically can't survive without, you know, six to 11 servings of whole grains every day. That's, that's complete and utter bull crap. There's no truth to that at all. And I mean, you know, as carnivores, we know that there are multiple civilizations that live their entire life, very health, healthy, very fit cut. They live to be old, healthy people with all their teeth and they never ate a single uh, grain of whole grains their entire life. And so that's, that's an example of one of the chapters is that you need whole grains to be healthy. It's complete and other crap. And so I used to be an ignorant, fat, inflamed, pre-diabetic doctor giving all my patients this erroneous nutrition advice that I thought I knew what I was talking about because I was a doctor, right? And so if it came out of my mouth, it was the truth. Turns out I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And as I've kind of come on this health journey myself that took me from you know, eating a, the American Heart Association diet or the American Diabetes Association diet or the, the biggest loser diet, right? And so as I kind of transformed from that into more of an ancestral primal, primal blueprint diet and then to a paleo diet and then to a ketogenic diet, and now I've kind of come the full length of my journey. And I think I found where I'm supposed to stay the rest of my life, which is a, a fatty meat heavy keto or just a fatty meat carnivore diet that's where i feel the best that's where my body does the best my joints give me zero problems and so that's the kind of lies i talk about that sound true uh but really are they have no basis in either research or common sense or if you look at the ancestry of the situation it makes no sense from that perspective either 
you know, there was just a study that's been pushed. It's going to be pushed by the World Health Organization. Came from a guy, his name Professor Mann. Out of, I think he's in, I think he's in New Zealand now, originally from South Africa, and he's just pushing, saying that you know this is a comprehensive review of all the literature we looked at. You know, 135 epidemiology studies, and you know, how many million people, and we looked at 4,000 people in RCTs, and and our conclusion is. Healthy whole grains are the way to go. You need to get your fiber. It needs to be 25 to 29 grams per day. And that is the, that is the uh, scientific, uh, the science is settled. We hear this all the time. Science is settled on this stuff. And so, I mean, there's, that's, that message is still being pushed quite hard. Why yeah. is that? Well, that's because the doctors haven't actually went and looked at the studies like I now have and like I'm sure you have. And so w- what Dr. Mann's saying is true. That is the, the, consensus of the majority of experts. That's exactly true. And all the preponderance of the available evidence does point to that, that he's absolutely right about that. But when you actually start looking at the individual studies and teasing out, how did they do this study? Was this a food frequency questionnaire? Is that where they gleaned the data from? Is this an epidemiological study? Do they have a control group? Is this a, is this a controlled study or is this just an epidemiological study asking people how many cups of ribs have you eaten in the last year who the hell can answer that question i don't even know what that means but that's that's what all this evidence is based on all of it is based on epidemiological research that was either done well or was done terribly and most of the epidemiological research when you actually pick apart the study and look where did you actually get this data from it's ridiculous that they would even try to publish the study much less hold it up in a, in a meta-analysis or a review, like this is, this is the cream of the crop of studies. You can't do a better study than this. It's, it's, it's ludicrous that that's the, that is the strength of their study. And so the recent Eat Lancet thing that's come out that everybody's talking about, you know, Walter Willett is one of the co-chairs. And so he is an epidemiologist, basically from Harvard. He's, a new, he's in the nutrition department, but all he does is epidemiology studies. He never does a controlled study. He never has a controlled group. He never has a, the, the researchers are never blinded during the research. And so all of the researchers bias is able to creep right into the study results. And anybody who knows about statistics or epidemiology, you've got to blind the researchers or they're, I mean, if, if you and I did a huge research study we would see that meat is very, very healthy. And you would have to blind us to take our, our predisposition to believe that out of the study. You'd have to protect your study from our preconceived notions, even though I think I'm right. Walter Willett thinks he's right, right? All these guys, Dr. Mann thinks he's right about a, ve- a vegetable-heavy diet. But you've got you've to protect the data, the results, from the researcher's bias, or it will creep in every single time. That's just human nature. Yeah, we had Jeff Stanley on the show the other day. He's a, he's a doctor at Verta Health. And one of the things that he said, and, and I certainly agree with and sort of uh, echo this sentiment, is that you cannot use population-derived data to tell you and I individually what we should eat. Uh, you know, Professor John Anitis, and I, I always probably butcher how you say his name, you know, he's, a, he's a guy out of Stanford that has basically, you know, considered one of the most well-respected guys in the world of public health has basically said, you know, the nutritional epidemiology we've done over the last 50 years has largely been completely worthless because it doesn't yep. on anything, you know, and, and, you know, even if, you know, I'm, I'm not aware of really any epidemiology out there with regard to food that shows, 
you know, a hazard ratio, you know, of a 200% risk. It's all this, you know, your increase goes up by 12% or 9% or 17%. And, it, and that, that is completely meaningless when it comes right. to telling us really anything about causality. And we, and, and the vast preponderance of evidence towards nutrition is gleaned from that information, which is basically worthless. And so I, that's why, you know, I think this figure it out yourself is, is just yeah. powerful, if not more powerful. <laughs> Well, totally I totally agree. It's always surprising to me to see some of that stuff where it's like we're taking like a huge view at what people are doing and just isolating in on one of their potential pillars to health and ignoring all the rest and then just like slapping that down as an absolute as this is the way you have to do it. Anything else is going to be a risk. Um, and then like, you know, not looking any further than that. Or when you do look further, like, you know, ignoring stuff and highlighting other stuff. And it, it's, it's kind of surprising to me because, you know, when, when you think about just healthy living, there's, there's so many components to that. And, you know, barring just locking people up into a metabolic ward and really testing one thing against another, we can hardly find out. And then even that wouldn't be accurate because you're removing the healthy pillar of just so, or the other healthy pillars of life that would, um, that would, that would work along with not being locked up in a metabolic ward for, you know, months, right. if not years. So it's really like, it's one of those things where it, we're trying to solve essentially, or we're trying to answer this question that you cannot answer. You just cannot do it because you cannot, you cannot like whittle out all the other possible variables that are affecting things. And these are major variables like sleep, um, you know, just social activities, exercise, things that are major movers, I think, when it comes to health and longevity. Uh, so to focus in on any one of them and say, this is the only way to do it. Uh, that's the problem, I think. And, you know, if people want to do it with the, like a Walter Willett way or an Ornish way or something like that, and then put those other pillars of health in there, that's fine. But when you want to go and just like trumpet it as being the only potential, it's like that's kind of doing a disservice to anyone who wouldn't work with your situation and need to kind of figure things out for themselves. So, you know, diving into any of this stuff other than from the individual side of things is, is a mistake. Absolutely. And one of the things I try to help people understand, because when you, I mean, when you see a, a prestigious medical journal like Lancet, and they're partnering with all these huge luminaries in the nutrition, uh, you know, sphere, and saying, no, this is it. This is settled science. This is the way you do it. This is an expert consensus. I go, whoa, wait, let's stop right there. Because Dr. Baker knows this, and you probably know this too, Zach. There's a hierarchy of medical research. And the best medical research that you can actually use to apply to individual patients or people's lives is the randomized controlled trial that's double-blinded. That is the cream of the crop of research. You can use the results from that, assuming you did the study correctly. You can use that and apply it to individual human beings' lives and help them. But as you come down kind of the hierarchy of medical research, next is, oh, it's not double-blinded. Oh, it's not randomized. Oh, it's just an observational study. Oh, it's a meta-analysis. At the very, very bottom of strength of medical research is expert consensus. And that basically means a bunch of smart guys with long white coats got into a room and they just talked about this and they agreed on this. And that has no strength whatsoever when it comes to statistical. If you're talking about statistical strength, it has none. And that's all this Eat Lancet thing is. is. The, all of the World Health Organization's 
health guidelines and recommendations are based on expert consensus, which means you get a bunch of smart old white guys in a room and they decide on something and then that becomes the standard of care for everybody. That's junk medical science. It's junk nutritional science. It doesn't help anybody. But if, if just a layman, just a member of the public, if they hear that, they don't know the, the hierarchy of research strength and epidemiological strength and research strength of studies. They don't know that. And so it's our job to educate them on my YouTube channel, on your guys' YouTubes, on our Facebooks, on Instagram. That's what we're here to do is to say, no, that, that is meaningless when it comes to nutritional science, that a bunch of old white guys got in a room and agreed on this. That has no scientific strength whatsoever, and you should not base your health and your family's health on that. You know, and that's, you know, very, very interesting. And, and certainly, you know, you, if you were something like, and I looked at this, you know, the RDAs, recommended daily allowances, were based on that same level of evidence, expert consensus, which is kind of interesting. But, you know, more importantly, you know, we are going to be faced with not choice. You know, it's not that you and I can choice. What, what is being proposed is that, you know, and, and it was something I think uh, Frank Mitlauner posted an excerpt from this Eat Lancet recommendation. They said, if left to individual choice, people will not adopt the guidelines that we're laying down. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to heavily regulate, heavily tax, uh, change export and import policies, you know, force this issue, force this diet on humanity. And, and they're, you know, and they're going to do this through huge, huge, you know, yeah, pressures, you know, political, political stuff, you know, so again, it's like, what do you do to combat that? Is, is, is this inevitable? I, 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 I'm very concerned about that. Yeah, I'm very concerned about it as well. And I predict what will happen is, is just like when the, the U.S. government declared a war on drugs, when President Nixon said, we're declaring war on drugs. Basically, they just cre- they didn't they didn't decrease drug use whatsoever. They just created a huge black market for drugs, and so now there's a billion dollar black market for all these drugs because they tried to they tried to make people do this, and that might work in some countries, but I predict that's not going to work in the U.S. at all. I can just tell you that right now. Everybody's going to start having a few chickens in the backyard. If they've got a big enough backyard, they'll have a pig back there. If they've got a small farm, they're going to have two or three cows. I predict that, that the local butcher will pop back up and he'll, or the local slaughtering house and they'll, people will start processing. They'll grow their own meat. They'll process their own meat. They won't go to a supermarket for meat. They'll get it locally. And so I think actually this is probably going to have a huge positive effect on the local markets. People are just going to start eating even more local. And now with the advent of social media, the cat's kind of out of the bag. You know, used to, you got all your nutrition advice from your doctor and from Channel 4 News. That was it. You didn't have another outlet. But now people can go to social media and go, yeah, I'll just, I'll just start having three hens in the backyard. Hens don't crow. The neighbors won't know. Even if I live in some kind of controlled neighborhood, you can have three or four hens and nobody will ever know that. And so then you can have eggs every day. You can eat those tasty egg yolks that are fed with bugs and grass. And you can get your good bets. And, and the, the World Health Organization and the federal government and, and Eat Lancet can go to hell. And so I predict there will be a huge black market in real food. And I think that's, that's going to be amazing to watch because, you know, that's, that's part of the reason that our ancestors came to America because they were tired of being told what to do. 
And so to think that you're going to impose this kind of dictatorial mandate on our nutrition, that's not going to go well. And, and in, even, it wouldn't go well 50 years ago in the U.S. without social media. And now with social media, you can jump on YouTube and make a video and show somebody how to raise 50 quail in a, in, in a corner of your garage. And you can have quail eggs and quail breast every day of the year, and you won't have to pay any of the tax on it. It'll essentially be free. And so 50 years ago, nobody had access to that. It was just word of mouth. But now somebody can make a, a YouTube video and they can literally teach a million people how to grow quail in a corner of your garage or how to have three chickens in the backyard or have, how to have a, you know, a pygmy cow running around in the backyard being pasture fed and then go to the local meat processor. And then you've got a freezer full of grass fed, grass finished meat for, for the entire year for your family. And the federal government can go to hell. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the only, I guess the only issue I would see with that, and I'm certainly for people, people doing that, um, many of us, most of our population lives in cities and, you know, yeah. people living in apartments. And so you've got those people that are still, you know, yeah. really dependent upon this. And so I know that uh, talking to Bart Simmons about the fact that, you know, if they do, a, you know, a meat business, it, it will drive a lot of these local producers out of, out, of, out of business. And then we have these big huge processing companies to deal with. But I mean that, you know, certainly for, you know, you know, you live out there in Tennessee or where, you know, I think yeah. you probably got, you got probably got a land. That's an easy thing, but uh, you know, and, and, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it'll be like the, you know, the prohibition from the 1920s that people, you know, like the rum runners have said, now they be running around with snakes yeah. back in their car, zipping around doing this stuff. I mean, that, that's, that's exactly what I predict will happen because in the 1920s, they didn't have social media. And so you had to have secret handshakes and secret passwords. But now I can jump on YouTube and I can tell a million people how to grow chickens in your backyard. It's effortless. It's easy. And, and literally, if you have a suburb backyard that's a tenth of an acre, you can have four hens back there thriving and doing great. And no, if you've got a, a fence, no neighbor ever has to know. But you're right. There are people in the cities who don't have access to that type of thing. But I would, I would call your attention to there's already a subset of the population who are already under such onerous guidelines. And that's kids who, who are in school, who are in public school, they have to eat the, the school breakfast, the school lunch, the school snack. They're already essentially eating these guidelines, right? Because in school, peanut butter is considered a meat and, and ketchup is considered a vegetable because the federal government says so. And so anybody who's a, an inpatient in a hospital, they're already pretty much eating these guidelines. If you're in a nursing home, you're already eating these guidelines because those guys won't get their federal money if they don't go by the federal guidelines, which are, which is essentially a, a, a baby, a, a training wheels version of what eat Lancet wants to impose on every human on the planet. Wait, wait, yeah. you said peanut butter is considered a meat. Where did <laughs> yeah. That yeah. It's, it's, con it's considered a protein. And so the, the, every school has to have a nutritionist, right? And peanut butter, it can be full of sugar, obviously full of peanuts and then full of whatever vegetable oil, that's considered the protein for the day. And so they can literally give the kids a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And that they, there's your wheat that, you know, there's your whole grains, there's your protein. And then there's your fruit, literally not even kidding. That's how, that's what the, the public schools. And, and I don't even want to say that they get to do that. They have to do that. They're mandated because if we had a local school here, a very small local school who the cafeteria ladies would prepare real meals for the kids. 
because they were like, I'm not feeding these kids this crap. I love these kids, right? They're neighborhood kids. Everybody knew everybody's name. And the school almost lost their federal funding because somebody told on them. And the federal government came and, and audited the cafeteria and looked at the records and said, you guys got to stop this now. You either follow the federal guidelines or you'll lose whatever tens of thousands of federal money you're getting every year. And then you can cook for the kids. And they had to stop because they couldn't operate without that federal money. And so every, every public school kid in America has, is having to live under already such idiotic nutrition guidelines. And so basically what they're wanting to do is they're wanting to apply it to all adults as well as the children who are already having to eat that way. So you can imagine a poor kid who lives in an urban area who goes to public school, they're already essentially eating this diet because they have, they don't have access to anything else. Yeah. Well, it gets, it gets almost worse than that. Like I was in the public schools teaching for just over five years. And you know, what you described is, is pretty much exactly what I saw. Um, you know, I actually remember one of the districts I taught for at the end, we had our new teacher orientation and, one of the, they brought in like the district uh, dietitian and like they were like super excited about this new like low fat whole grain pizza that they were going to be serving and uh, um you know the the other really weird thing i saw with that is uh they had like these pre-made lunches essentially that they would you most of the kids that were eating those um were eating them some, some of them because they had to. I mean, it was the free meal. Uh, you know, other kids just because it was there and they didn't bother to bring a lunch or whatever. But what these things included was exactly what you said, like a crustless peanut butter sandwich that was like, you know, packaged. It was, you know, someone was selling it. I don't care. remember what company it was. But yeah, peanut butter jelly, white bread. Um, also inside that was like an apple and like a bag of this like broccoli and uh, carrot sticks. And it was, uh, you know, they, these kids take it and they eat the peanut butter sandwich. They maybe take a couple of bites out of the apple. They definitely throw the broccoli and carrots in the garbage. <laughs> I remember looking at some of these garbage cans after lunch. It was literally basically uh, like a little fermentation chamber that you, you could have <laughs> taken out back and made a compost pile with because it was just loaded up with all this broccoli and carrots that these kids weren't going to eat. And then they would just, I mean, it was high school. So these kids would just walk over to the gas station three blocks down and go buy you know, packaged muffins, donuts, sodas, and things like that, because, you know, they were going to find a different way around it. And um, yeah, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's trying to, when you try to force people to do stuff like that, especially when it's um, something they really don't want to do, you end up getting all these unforeseen consequences. Right. Um, right. And I don't, I don't want to like necessarily say like, okay, who, someone's responsible for this. We have to you know, really drop the hammer on them, so to speak. But it's, it's, it's just like we've learned this lesson in history with a lot of things where when you, over and over and over, when you heavily regulate or you say, this is the one way you have to do it this way, all kinds of unforeseen consequences pop up and it's, it's becoming, they're not even unforeseen anymore. We know they're coming, but we still keep doing it. Yep. Absolutely. Right. Ken, let me just, I know because you have like me gone crazy and adopted a meat heavy diet and everybody thinks we're, we're the craziest people in the world. And, and, and are you using this with some of the patients you have, uh, you know, you know, either, either carnivore, keto carnivore, full carnivore, whatever, where there's a lot of meat in the diet. Now we're told meat causes diabetes, meat causes hypertension, meat makes you fat, meat makes you inflamed. What are you seeing clinically? Because, you know, when we say that, 
when we actually look at how much meat we eat in the American diet, it's really a small amount. And particularly yeah. red meat, you know, the average American only eats about two and a half ounces a day. And yet, you know, the majority of our food is, you know, processed grain, seed oil, and sugar. And yet we're blaming it on that little 2.5 ounces, which right. you know, we think is that is the cause of problems. So what happens when people go on meat heavy, meat rich, just almost exclusive meat diet? What are you, you seeing clinically happening? Yeah, I've I, in my in my clinical practice, I've been recommending actively, vocally recommending the ketogenic diet for about two years now. <clears throat> and every now and then, I'll have a patient who says, "I just can't do that diet because I love my bread too much, or I whatever, whatever." But I've yet to have a patient who adopted it who had a medical bad outcome. I've yet to have that. Okay, I've had multiple type 2 diabetics who have completely reversed or cured their type 2 diabetes. And I'm not afraid to say they cured their type 2 diabetes because Sean and I, can, we can go into details about what is the medic, how do you diagnose diabetes? It's based on lab values. And so if you no longer have those lab values, it's ignorant to say, oh, well, you're just in remission. That's stupid, right? That's like if I, if I came to Sean's house and started putting mercury in every steak, and he got mercury poisoning, right? And so he, it took months to diagnose that. Finally, the doctor said, oh, dude, your mercury level's sky high. You've got mercury poisoning. Stop eating mercury, right? And then Sean stopped eating the mercury. And then his mercury poisoning went away. Would we, how would we talk about that? Would we say, oh, yeah, Sean's mercury poison is in remission now? Is that what you would say? That, that's ignorant. You wouldn't say that. You would say he's been cured of his mercury poisoning because that's the truth of the matter. And when you, when you take the slow poison that, that are processed carbohydrates out of somebody's diet and you cure their type two diabetes by doing that, it's foolish to say their, di their diabetes is in remission. It's not, they cured it. And so I've been actively recommending keto for two years with handouts, with, with talking face to face with patients. And I've had nothing but uniform improvement in diabetes and hypertension and in, in, in uh, high triglycerides and super low HDLs that we've reversed. Uh, we've, we've brought people see peptide levels back to normal levels so that their pancreas is not having to work hard and pump out all this extra insulin. Uh, multiple cases of arthritis. I've had guys on the, the list, Sean, I'm having knee replacement. I'm having my knee replaced in three weeks. And, I, and so they're with me doing their pre-op, right, getting their EKG and their labs and stuff and their chest X-ray. And I'm like, you know, I wish you would just try keto between now and surgery. And I can't tell you how many of those guys, when I see them six months for follow-up, they're like, yeah, I called and canceled that surgery because my knees felt so much better. I'm like, why have this major surgery when I could just eat this diet? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So why don't you just keep eating that diet? And the surgeon can figure out another way to make his Mercedes payment. Now, I don't, I, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to make his Mercedes payment for him. And people love that, that they can take control of their health and actually not be at the mercy of doctors and pills and big pharma and surgeons. You don't have to do that. You can take charge of this and reverse all that crap. And so I talk about the carnivore diet with my patients who are already keto. If they're still having this particular problem or that particular problem, I put it to them like, why don't you try a month of carnivore and just see what happens? Let's try this experiment and see if your reflux gets better or if your psoriasis gets better, even better, because it's gotten better on keto. Let's see if we can make it go completely away 
with a month of carnivore. And if after that month, if you're no better, go back to keto or go back to paleo or whatever was working for you before. But yeah, I, I actively talk about keto and carnivore every single day I see patients. Yeah, I don't, you know, the, the idea of the mercury poison, I'm a little worried about that some crazy vegan is going to start slipping mercury. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and I drive an F-150, so I don't have a Mercedes, but, uh, you know, maybe that's me, why yeah. I, I, I told somebody to diet, you know, that's kind of funny. But uh, Exactly right. What um, what kind of uh, surprising stuff have you found, you know, as far as, you know, you know, because diabetes, you know, Verta Health is pushing that, you know, we can go on a low-carb diet, reverse diabetes, but do you find, and I know you talked about joint pain, what other kind of interesting things are you finding that, that changing diet has an impact on uh, you know, different diseases through three, three areas of health that I really, I, I mean, I know keto is powerful. I know carnival is powerful, powerful medical intervention in patients life. I never dreamed that it would have the effect that it does on three areas. One is gout. I never dreamed. I thought gout was something you just were genetically, you had it and that was it. And I'm sorry, but you're stuck with gout. And, and then the, the mental, issues. Mental health is a huge area that I never thought I would see the amount of improvement in patients that I'm seeing. And then the third is dermatological conditions. I never dreamed that you could reverse psoriasis and make it essentially go completely away except for maybe one little, you know, square inch patch on your leg or, or eczema, rosacea. I thought that was something that, that, you know, Caucasians just, you had it, that was it, you're screwed, you got it for life. I've seen all these things essentially go completely away when they removed the slow poisons from their diet that are sugars, all sugars, all grains, all vegetable oils, and then some vegetables, if not all vegetables. And so I've seen people with severe rosacea, even with the rhinophyma that you get after years and years of having rosacea, when they stop the alcohol and stop the grains, it just, they don't, they don't need their metro gel anymore. They don't need their doxycycline anymore. They stop, they, and I, I won't see them for a year or two and they come in. I'm like, Oh, do you need your doxy refilled? No, dude, my rosacea, it's like, it's gone. I don't even know. Same with gout. Do you need your allopurinol? No, I, I haven't taken it in six months and I haven't had a single flare because I've been eating keto. Awesome. And then I would be preaching to type two diabetics about keto, right? Who also had depression or anxiety. They were taking Clonopin or they were taking Lexapro or they were, they were taking, God forbid, Zyprexa because of their mood, instability of their mood or their depression or their anxiety. And so I'd be focused hundred percent on that diabetes, right? Trying to reverse that type two diabetes. And then they come for follow-up for labs and stuff. And I'm like, okay, you need refills, Lexapro. No, I don't take that anymore. I'm like, why don't you, why, what, have, what are you talking about? And they're like, dude, my mood is so much better. I haven't taken that in three months. And I hear that every single day at the very clinic. I'm not taking, I, I weaned down and stopped that clonop and I weaned down and stopped my Zoloft. I don't need it anymore. And so those are the three areas where I never thought I would see the improvement that I see is, is in mental health, is in dermatology and uh, just chronic joint conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, gout, those sort of things. And in psoriatic arthritis, is a, it's, it just goes away when you get the poison out of your diet. It's, it's, it's miraculous almost. Yeah, I see that over and over myself, you know, just from what, what I get told all the time. Um, you know, we see, uh, what was the question I was going to think of? We have, uh, you know, all the idiopathic diseases that we, you're not, you know, we, we go up and we learn and what's the cause of, well, we don't really know. And, and you know, right. the, the standard answer was, 
genetics, it's just bad luck. You know, it's, you know, we don't know. And you've given that answer to so many people over the years, you know, essential hypertension. We don't know, you know, uh, you know, yeah. all, all this stuff. And now you're saying it's a damn food, you know, or, yep. you know, or yep. likely the food. And I think that's yeah. just very, I mean, it's so simple, you know, to think about this that we're all being, you know, slowly exposed to things we're not supposed to toxic over time. Right. What do you think about the people that would say, you know, we need those things for, from a hormetic benefit. You know, we, we, we need those little poisons to, to toughen us up, to, to upregulate our, you know, hepatic enzymes so that we can, we can better deal with life. And, you know, maybe we should all breathe in smog every day just to toughen ourselves up. Because that, that certainly is something people will say, well, you know, why would you eliminate this stuff from your diet? Even right. You feel better, you, you maybe you should need that in there just to keep you tougher. What do you think about that? Well, I, I don't discount that argument. And I do see the, the, the rationality of that argument because hormesis is a thing. I totally agree with that. Uh, but at the same time, the, the whole concept, the whole theory of hormesis is that you take a tiny bit of the, po the poison, right? And, and, you, and you take them a little more and a little more until you've built up a tolerance to it. But wouldn't it just be better? Wouldn't it be a more elegant way of doing that is to just avoid the poison altogether? Seems to me like that would be much a much more elegant scientific solution is just to avoid the poison wholly. Then you don't have to worry about it. And so, you know, you got, you know, some of your listeners may know that kings of old would take a little poison and a little more and a little more so that if anybody ever tried to poison them, they would basically have a, a, a resilience to that. And it wouldn't kill them. And, but wouldn't it just be more elegant not to poison yourself to start with? And I, that's the path I've chosen, but I don't completely discount that. And I don't know. I mean, there might be a rational argument to the, the saying, Hey, we should expose our kids to vegetables and fruits and seeds and stuff so that they do build up a tolerance to that. And then as an adult, they should stop eating that. And the, but they would still have that tolerance tolerance in case they ever, they were starving and they had to eat it or, they, you know, it got into some food that they didn't know it was in, then they wouldn't have this terrible reaction. Maybe there's some efficacy to that theory. I don't know. Uh, but, but I think on average that that's unusable for the average person because they're not going to, I mean, hormesis is a very gradual stepped up approach. Nobody's going to do that in their normal life. They're just going to sit down and eat a meal and then get up and go live their life. Now for a word from our sponsors. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store this is actually a fair bit more economical. And so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very, uh, you know, enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Remember, to get your discount and free bacon, type in promo code HPO at the checkout. Now, back to the show. 
That reminds me of the, I don't know, the movie The Princess Bride with Walter Shawn and, uh, <laughs> you know, taking a little the secret poison, don't mess with the Sicilian. But what do you say about people that say, you know, they'll say, well, you know, keto, it's just not sustainable. I mean, you know, you, you, you can do it for six months, lose weight, but then you're just going to go back to eating your stuff and you're going to get fat again and die back. So you really didn't cure yourself. I mean, because, you know, we hear it all the time. It's not sustainable. It may be good for short-term weight loss, blah, 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 but, but no one can do it for a long period of time. What is your, what is your impression on that particular argument? Well, I completely disagree with that for the following reasons. I, my patients are the just salt of the earth, true blue folks, right? They're country people. One plus one equals two, and that makes sense to them, and so that's what they're going to do. And so when I have a patient go full bore keto, and reverse all these things and lose 60, 70 pounds, they'll very, very often go off the, the reservation. They'll fall off the train, right? And over Christmas, over Thanksgiving, if it's their birthday or, if, you know, if they have family come and visit. But then they immediately get the negative feedback from their body. Their joints start to ache. Their heartburn comes back. That psoriasis patch that was just the size of a nickel is now the size of a dollar bill. And they're like, what the heck? And so, and they may gain back 20 pounds, but then they immediately say, well, that's stupid. I'm not going to do that. And so there are so many thousands of good quality ketogenic food choices. It's kind of silly to say it's not sustainable because it is. I have hundreds of patients who eat that way every single day and have done so for years. And I'll tell you another great benefit of it is you've probably seen this, Sean, years ago, people would go on the Weight Watchers diet or the biggest loser diet, and they'd lose 60, 70, 80 pounds. But then what would happen within six months? They would gain it all back plus five, right? That is the very definition of not sustainable. That's definitely not sustainable if you gained it all back plus five. And so what I've seen in my practice over the last two or three years is when people will lose 60, 70, 80 on keto, and they'll go off the rails. And they'll, get, and they'll come back in and they'll be like, oh, doc, don't be mad at me, man. I've been eating stupid shit and I've, I've gained back the weight. And I'm like, wait, how much did you gain back? 22 pounds, 18 pounds, right? It's, they never gain it all back. And it's almost like when you hear the keto, keto bell ring, you can never unhear that. And so you might go back to eating some crap, but you're still eating pretty ketogenic because you just know it makes sense. You've thought about it. You know, what did my great, 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 great grandfather eat? If you've watched any doc, uh, videos by Dr. Michael Eads, you're like, what did the Neanderthals eat? What did people eat 50,000 years ago? We can actually know the answer to that now. And the average guy walking the street can watch a YouTube video, and he can know just as much as Walter Willett knows about this and, and within a matter of hours, right? And so I see keto as very sustainable because you get immediate negative feedback from your body when you start to deviate from it. And, and if there were only five choices, like I can see people calling carnivore restrictive. Yeah, I get that. You know, there's only so many different kinds of meat, but with keto, man, there's thousands of choices that are, that are keto friendly foods that you can eat as much as you want. And so to call keto restrictive is just, that's ignorant. You just don't know what you're talking about. But I, that argument, I guess it kind of applies to carnivore because you only eat meat. So that really is, you can say, you know, technically that's restrictive, but I can tell you as a carnivore for going on 10, 11 months now, never once do I sit down with Nisha to a ribeye and go, damn it, I got to eat another ribeye. Do you ever do that, Sean? Like, damn it. 
Yeah, the sustainability argument, I think, is flawed, even even if you extrapolate from keto onto carnivore, because to me, not sustainable would mean you do not have access to that in the quantities you would need to survive. Um, Clearly, we don't have that problem in America. Like They consider it a food desert if you're more than two miles from a grocery store. So scarcity isn't the issue. Um, right. you know, and, and in fact, it's like you were saying, Ken, like you have so many options with even some of the extreme ends of the spectrum for dietary interventions that even those you have options to pick from. So really when someone says, well, I, it, it wasn't sustainable to me, it's, it's kind of a cop out and it's a, a mechanism where you're saying I couldn't do it. Therefore it was unsustainable rather than, you know, I couldn't do it because I couldn't right. do it. You know, it's, yeah. and, 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 yeah, and that's fine. Absolutely. I think to a degree, it's like, I can sympathize with that. Like you, I, it's not, I don't consider it my business or my prerogative to tell someone they should eat exact specific way. But, um, you know, so like you, 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 there's for, to me, it's like, you have no reason to, to make up an excuse, just say you didn't want to do it. And I'm going to be fine right. with that. Right. Um, but yeah, to the, the unsustainable side of things is, is it's kind of unrealistic. We have access to so much. If anything, we have a surplus and we have too many options and that's what makes it perceived to be unsustainable because you can walk into the grocery store, put a blindfold on and grab random things that would make your keto diet or your carnivore diet break. So it's almost right. that things are so readily available. The temptations are so great. It, it, yeah. it appears to be unsustainable when in reality yeah. it's quite sustainable. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I think sustainability, especially if an individual says, oh, keto just wasn't sustainable for me. What that means is unless they were living somewhere where literally it was unsustainable, but if they're living in just the average setting in the United States, what that meant was that they never truly, truly broke their addiction to sugars and grains. And so they just, they missed the bread, they craved bread. And so they ate their bread. That's what that means is I wasn't able to do it. I, I didn't put in the effort to do it. But once, once you've been keto for months, it's not even an issue because the cravings for sugar and bread and all that crap, they just go away. And I'll tell you, one of the things, if somebody's been keto and they still have those cravings, a month or two of carnivore will put, that, put those cravings in the grave. Because last night when, when Danny Vega and I and Nisha, we were at the restaurant and, and Danny and I both had, had a huge rack of dry ribs and Nisha had some steak and chicken. and I said, you know, we were talking, I said, Danny, you know, if it, my cravings are so gone for that crap now. If they brought a hot fudge, like used to, man, a hot fudge cake, dude, I would smash that shit. I'm just telling you. And if you brought, I mean, the, a, a homemade one, set it on the table with just the, the chocolate sauce and the whip, I'd be like, no, I don't even want that. Is there still some meat on that bone? Like carnivore has killed my cravings for that crap even more than keto did. And with keto, I was able to say, no, yeah, I don't want that. I don't need that. But now, dude, with carnivore, I don't even, like, you would have to pay me a substantial amount of money to eat a hot fudge cake now. Ken, to kind of, I just want to follow up on something we were talking about before, before we get too far away from it, because um, it's along those lines of using the carnivore diet essentially as an elimination diet in route to, you know, broaden your options more or less. Have you had people who do say a 30 day carnivore challenge and then say, okay, I'm going to try doing like a micro dose of some of these things that gave me issues in the past. And then find like, you know, on the back end of that carnivore experience now with a small introduction, they're able to reinduce things that would have just given them grief in the past. 
I, well, people do that, but it's more of a uh, happenstance discovery. Like, oh man, I had no idea that it was tomatoes that were that was causing all that. And so after a month of carnivore, I tell people, add back in some brassicas, add some Brussels sprouts, add some asparagus, because I think those are probably the least bad, the leafy greens, because you could think ancestrally 50,000 years ago, if we didn't have any meat, we'd start eating greens that were easily accessible, right? And then we'd go digging for tubers. And so I think that that makes sense to add back in the leafy greens and stuff that's, that, you know, basically all the brassicas came from one leafy green vegetable that they've just, over the last few hundred years, we've, we've created asparagus and Brussels sprouts and kale. Those are all from the same ancestor, right? And so either you can, you, either you can or you can't eat those. But very often after the, the carnivore month-long challenge, somebody will be like, dude, I had some uh, uh, sofrito, which is a Puerto Rican. It's like tomatoes, peppers, mixed together and they're like oh man my gut bloated and it i think it's the nightshades i think i can't eat those and it's like yeah you probably can't many people are very sensitive to those but they have no idea and so only after keto and then maybe a month of carnivore can you actually do that experiment right because think about this if you're eating the, the american diabetes diet or the ornish diet or the biggest loser diet you're so inflamed and so bloated you could stop nightshades and you couldn't tell any noticeable difference in your health, right? Because you're so inflamed and, and blown up by all the other crap. Only after you've eliminated all those slow poisons and maybe done a, a month of carnivore, can you start to do those experiments? Let me try some tomatoes and see what happens. Let me try some asparagus and see what happens. And, you know, let me try some spinach, see what happens. And then you can go, whoa, I had no idea that that affected me because people have this erroneous thought process about this or like oh somehow carnivore has made you sensitive to all these veggies like it's made you weaker but that's not the they're thinking about this upside down and backwards what carnivore allows you to do is to discover the toxicities that you would have never discovered otherwise because when you after a month or two of fatty meat your system is as pure as it can possibly be and so then you can actually detect those micro doses of poison that otherwise you wouldn't even be able to tell that you ate that. Does that make sense? Yeah. You wonder, you know, when we go back, just thinking about it, when we got, you know, you know, for us, we had little babies, you know, they start out on mm -hmm. breast milk and then you start adding this stuff in and then all of a sudden they get colic and they get right. frustrated. They're not happy. Right. Because right. Or they get eczema or, or they know, get, yeah. Yeah. Or psoriasis. All yeah, these. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so maybe we're starting to start not hitting these little babies with poison and they have to build up tolerance to it. Uh, let me ask you just back to the keto stuff because, uh, you know, a ketogenic diet, because there is so much variety, can mean a lot of different things. And there are many people that will, quote unquote, fail on a ketogenic diet, potentially because, you know, what do you, what do you think the biggest errors people make on a ketogenic diet with regard to food choices and macronutrient compositions and, 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 and approach? What, what, what errors do you commonly see? So the, the, there's a list and the, probably the biggest one that I see, and it's because keto is getting popular. All, all the businesses are now trying to make a profit off the popularity of the ketogenic way of eating. So they're coming out with keto shakes, keto pills, keto bars, keto powders, and that's all crap. That's all processed food. And I'm sorry to all my ketogenic brothers and sisters who are trying to make a buck off this. You cannot process real food and make it, have a shelf life of two years and it still be real food that is impossible you cannot do that that is not 
that's just not going to work ever. If you're trying to make money in the ketogenic sphere, you need to find another method because that, that's probably not how you're going to do this sustainably because you can't take real food and process it and add preservatives and, and give it a shelf life of two or three years and then call that real food. It's no longer food. And so I think a lot of people first come into this, it's kind of the American mindset. Oh, I'm going to do keto I need to buy keto products, right? That's just kind of how Americans think. I need to buy something. I need to add something to my diet. And that's completely opposite of what the true ketogenic way of eating is, which is real food, whole food, food that actually either ran on the earth or grew in the earth. That's keto food, right? And so that's number one is trying to eat a bunch of products and think that that's okay. Secondly is to use lots of nut flours to keep baking and thinking, oh, you know, I, my mother baked, and so it's ancestrally appropriate for me to bake too. And so using lots of almond flour and coconut flour and all this stuff, and then some people even try to use quinoa flour and, and, and spelt and amaranth and thinking, well, that's got to be less bad. Yeah, it is less bad, so it's less poisonous, but it's still a seed or a bean. And a, a lot of the things we call nuts are actually tubers and beans. They're not real nuts. And so a lot of people get in trouble just using too much nut flour. And so they stay bloated. They don't lose much weight. And they're like, well, this keto don't work. And so they go back to eating their, their standard stupid American diet. Another way is people will use way too much dairy. Because I'm just telling you, back when I used to, because when I was, when I played football in high school, I used to drink a gallon of milk a day. And Sean, you may have done that back in the day, man. I thought that was the ultimate. That was going to put on bone and muscle. That was going to help me. And I had, I had dandruff. Like when I, when I shook my head, no, it looked like it was snowing. I had chronic allergic rhinitis every day of my teenage life. And so when I went to college, we couldn't have dorm, uh, fridges in our little dorm. And it was a long walk to the, to, to the, the cafeteria. And so instead of like, I would, I would slam a glass of milk every hour or two when I was living at home. But when I went to college, I couldn't do that anymore. And so my dandruff and my, my allergies went away. And I, and I thought the reason that my allergies got my idiotic college brain thought, well, my dorm room is so filthy that my allergies either had to get over it. Or I was just going to die. That's what I, that's how, that's how I rationalized it back then. But now looking back with the knowledge I have now, I stopped drinking milk all the time and my allergies went completely away. And so I think a lot of people drink way too much and you know, whole milk is less bad than skim milk, but whole milk is not keto. I'm sorry. It is not. It's got way too much carbs, way too much inflammatory way in case that people, that many, many people, even if you don't, if you're not lactose intolerant, I promise you, if you stop drinking milk for a month, you'll see health improvement. It is, it is cow's milk is made for baby calves. It is not made for human beings and it's inflammatory to every human being, in my opinion, to, to a lesser or to a greater extent. And so I think dairy, I think nut flours, I think trying to eat a lot of keto products, continue to do a lot of baking. And when that's really not something that humans have done for more than a few hundred years, those are probably the biggest pitfalls for people. And that, that's a stumbling block. And then they'll be like, well, I'm not really getting any benefits and I'm not able to eat all this other cool stuff that I used to enjoy. So I'm just going to quit. What about uh, the fat bombs and the, you know, the drinking the, the, you know, the butter in your coffee and, and that sort of stuff. And then, and then just back on the dairy thing, because, uh, and I'm the same way. I do better, a hell of a lot better when I have no dairy in my diet. You know, when I'm, you know, for me, and, and I do include dairy from time to time. And, and, and inevitably, if I have very much of it, I just don't feel as good. When I, when I feel my best, I'm just eating a bunch of red meat, quite honestly, which I think a lot of people find hard to believe. Right. 
that's the truth for me. But what, what do you, we hear people talk about raw dairy and A2 dairy and, and that stuff. Is there any is there any caveats around that stuff that you find? Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I think that that is less bad than a gallon of, of skim milk from Walmart. Yeah, I do. I think it's less bad. And so that's what I want people to start thinking on is everything in your health is on a spectrum or a bell curve. You can think of it either way. And so is, is whole milk less bad than skim milk? Yes. Is half and half less bad? Yes. Because what you're getting rid of the carbs and you're getting rid of the casein and the, the whey and the other inflammatory proteins. And so for me on carnivore, I still, I have a, uh, I, I use butter and ghee. I use uh, some really good quality full fat cheeses and they don't seem to really affect me at all. But I know other carnivores that they can't do that or they'll immediately start to feel the physical effects. And so, yeah, I think that there, there is probably some benefit to A2 milk or, or goat's milk or raw, untouched, you know, milk straight from the, the cow's teeth. I think they're probably that those things are less bad than the homogenized, pasteurized hormone milk that you get at Wally World, but I don't think they're good. I just think they're less bad. Yeah, and I think sometimes where people run into problem within the ketogenic diet with some of that stuff too is it becomes a foundation of their approach. And yep. I mean, the the vegan movement deals with the same thing to a degree. It's like you'll hear all the time when you say, "Well, look at this vegan who fell off the rails," and um, and then the first thing they'll say is, "Well, they weren't actually following a real vegan diet. They were eating all the the vegan processed stuff." And um, we yep. had Dr. Joel Kahn on. He's like said, "Don't be a stupid vegan." Um, you can almost, it's the keto movement now is getting big enough where you have that same kind of scenario where there are these products out there that could be good for a pinch or good for like certain situations, but at no point were they designed to be kind of the cornerstone of your diet where right. now all of a sudden your, your main source of nutrients coming from all these like, you know, nut flowers and things like that right. as opposed to, you know, good quality, like real food, I guess, more or less. So um, you know, it seems like we just, we struggle time and time again. And I think this goes back to like what we were talking about earlier, where things are just so readily available. We've eliminated so many of the barriers to getting them. You know, if it was difficult to get your right. hands on like a keto treat, then people would probably eat them in the right quantity. But since it's very easy to, you know, people right. find themselves doing that. Yeah. And what we're trying to fight here is human nature. And anytime you try to fight human nature, with taxes, with regulations, or with just, you know, being blind to it, you're going to lose every single time. Human nature, it's just like pretending that you can put a dog in a room with a bowl of meat and tell him no and walk out of that room and then pretend, you can pretend in your heart of hearts that dog ain't going to eat that meat. But let me just tell you what, after a certain length of time, he's going to eat that meat because that's what dogs do. He's going to get your ribeye off the table, isn't he, Sean? He's going to get, if you don't protect that ribeye, he will get your ribeye. And so to say, oh, I'm going to regulate against that dog nature or I'm going to just pretend that doesn't exist, that's ignorant. You can't do that. And human nature is exactly the same way. You cannot. And so the human nature, uh, the two laws of human nature we're trying to fight with this is that it's human nature to try to make a profit off of any trend. That is human nature. And so you can't even fault the people making keto powders and keto drinks and keto this and that. That's human nature. You just got to allow for that. And it's also human nature to always look for the easy way out. That's human nature. That's who we are. That's why we run the world is because we found every shortcut in the book that other animals don't have access to. And so you can't ignore that and you can't say, oh, don't do that. 
people are going to do that. And so that's why I'm so active on, on my Facebook page and on Instagram is because I know those things are coming. People are going to take the easy way out and grab a keto shake. People are going to try to make a profit off keto and make a keto shake. So I'm trying to head both of those guys off at the past and say, no, that's not, that's not keto. This guy, he's, he, he's not evil that he made a keto shake. He's just a human being. He's trying to make a profit. You're not a, a lazy piece of crap because you want to grab a keto shake instead of have bacon and eggs every morning. That's just human nature, but that's also not going to be beneficial for your health. And so I think if we recognize the human nature that's in all this stuff, we can head all that stuff off at the pass and prevent a lot of people from failing keto or, or saying that keto is not sustainable, but it's just because we didn't honor the human nature that's in all these equations and allow for it. You have to do that. Ken, what, let me ask you a couple, just a couple other questions. Um, you know, there, there's uh, some people that really like these exogenous ketones, you know, uh, the other question, we, you know, we've heard traditionally, and, and, and I think that this has been questioned more and more is that, you know, eating a lot of protein is going to kind of quote unquote ruin your ketogenic diet or ruin your ketosis. What has been your experience with regard or, or comments on either of those two topics? So I've got, I actually have three videos on my YouTube channel about exogenous ketones. That's how strongly I feel about them. If you come to keto for health benefits or for weight loss, exogenous ketones have no part in that. They are a uniform and complete waste of money. They're not going to help you achieve any of those goals. They're just going to make the multi-level marketing company richer. That's all they're going to do, okay? Now, if you have a brain injury, if you're autistic, if you have, if you have a, a, an elder family member who has Alzheimer's who is just not going to eat keto, then you might help their brain function by slipping some exogenous ketones into their oatmeal, maybe. But for just the average guy that wants to lose weight or reverse type 2 diabetes or just wants to get the other benefits of keto, exogenous ketones are a waste of money, period. And that, that's what I think about that. Um, and so there's no place for exogenous ketones in a proper ketogenic diet for the average man and woman who's trying to just get the benefits that they could get from keto. Ken, is, is that partly due to, because if you're following a proper ketogenic diet, you're going to kind of squash some of those, those, uh, hunger pangs that would maybe plague someone trying to lose weight. Um, so when you put on top of that, the exogenous ketone, you're not necessarily, you know, moving another level away from avoiding hunger. It, perhaps, and, perhaps. Oh. Yeah. But, but, but the whole point of this is to be in the state of ketosis. That's the whole point. And I give the example on Facebook lives all the time. If I took Sean Baker and I was, and I, I could, I could make Sean Baker pregnant and don't, don't get perverted here. I'm not, I'm talking about medically speaking. Okay. <laughs> I could give, I could give him an injection have him wait an hour and then have him go pee on a pregnancy stick and it would be positive because I gave him an injection of HCG, right? And people were like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah, I can make him pee positive on a pregnancy stick. Does that mean Sean Baker's pregnant? No, it means that he's got, he's, I have given him exogenous HCG and now he's, he's getting rid of it in his urine, right? And so just because you're, you're turning your, your ketone stick purple, that does not mean you're in ketosis. This is a physiological state. And so if you're taking exogenous ketones, <clears throat> you're not getting in it. You're not, you're not doing what you need to be doing with the inner workings of your, your biochemistry and your physiology. And so it's, it's basically giving Sean Baker an HCG shot. That's not, that's not making him pregnant. 
that's just making him pee on the stick and turn it turn it positive. So the exogenous ketones, you know, people check their blood and check their urine and like, no, look, boom, it's positive. That does not mean you're in ketosis. That just means you have ketones in your bloodstream or in your urine. And so I'm, I really get triggered about these exogenous ketones because so many people are taking newcomers who don't know better to the cleaners and, and making millions off them. And that, that really pisses me off and it's inappropriate. And I would hope that nobody who's trying to be a, an, an authority in this sphere would be promoting exogenous ketones, except for the very rare conditions where you've got somebody with a brain injury or a brain condition who can't choose to eat the ketogenic way on their own, then maybe you can help them. And then the protein issue, I think Dr. Ben Bickman has the most excellent YouTube video about this. He gave a lecture at low carb somewhere. And basically if you're eating a low carb diet, you can't eat enough protein to, to, to initiate gluconeogenesis to any meaningful degree. Gluconeogenesis is not a push mechanism. It's a need. It's a demand mechanism, right? And so if your body needs glucose, your liver can crank up gluconeogenesis in seconds and give your red blood cells and all the other cells all the glucose they need. But you can't eat enough protein on a low-carb diet to push your liver into to making glucose. It just doesn't work that way uh, biochemically. And so many people have either never had the the uh, by the physiology and biochemistry lectures, or they've forgotten them. It doesn't work that way. It's not a push mechanism. It's it's like you can you can lead a, a donkey, but you can't push a donkey. It doesn't work that way. And so that's what I, I I don't think you can eat enough protein on carnivore or low carb keto to to initiate any kind of damaging gluconeogenesis. I just don't think it works that way. Yeah, we just had uh, Professor Bickman on the other day for round two. So hopefully you guys love that guy. Love that guy. Knows one of the, and I'll just bring this up because I thought it was such a fascinating point because we often hear uh, from, you know, our vegan colleagues that the, the reason we have diabetes is because fat is clogging up our cells and causing insulin resistance. And I asked, you know, Bickman about that. And he said, you know, there, there is some truth to that. And he was, he did actually some of the research which validated that particular thing. And he said that, if your serum saturated fat levels are elevated, this can lead to ceramides and other things that accumulate in the cell. However, eating saturated fat has nothing to do with serum saturated fat. And I said, well, what causes serum saturated fat to go up? Answer, insulin, which I thought was fascinating. So, you know, just because you're eating a bunch of saturated fat doesn't mean anything, but but what the vegans will do is saying saturated fat causes this, but the problem is eating it is not the issue. It's the insulin. And where do you get insulin from? It's not from eating, right. eating, eating the steak. It's from eating the, you know, the high carb refined grains and stuff. Right. Like that. It's really, yeah, it's not from the steak. It's from the French toast you ate with the steak. That's right, exactly right. right. So that 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 was pretty fascinating. I think. Um, what what else did I want to ask you about? Um, what about um, you know, as far as uh, we talked about the, you know, we I I brought the, the the thought up about the the fat bombs. You know, the the bulletproof coffees and. Mm. The, yeah, and the MCT oil, and because I did that stuff five years, three or four years ago, I thought, oh, that's, this is great, this is great, and then I kind of yep. thought about it, why am I sucking down all this, and Ben Bickman calls it drinking oil, what is yep. your thoughts on that, because a lot of people, that they, they want to be in ketosis so bad that they, you know, they know that if they drink these MCT oil, it's going gonna, it's gonna to raise your ketone levels, and right. my, my, and I never have checked my ketones, maybe I'm, a, you know, and just because I, I didn't really care, you know, I wanted, you know, I, I was worried about body composition or athletic performance or so on and so forth. Right. You know, the, well, the, the mindset is that, you know, my ketone levels got to be above 
three or four <clears throat> anim, you know, millimolar before it's, I'm really burning fat. I think there's some you know, misconception on, on what it really means to be in ketosis. Oh, I totally agree. And so you, you, you want to be in ketosis and you want to be burning ketones and fatty acids as your source of energy. So everybody who's checking your, your ketone levels religiously, you might want to do that the first month or two, and, and that's fine. But I do not think it's necessary in any way after the first month or two or three of, of the ketogenic way of eating. I don't think you ever have to check your ketones again, ever. I think that's a waste of time and money after you've learned the ins and outs of this diet. Uh, when, when Nisha and I really, really started doing keto, we bought some urine sticks and we maybe peed on them three or four times. And then after that, I'm like, that's stupid, right? If you're feeding a dog the proper dog diet, he's going to be healthy. And like, like Sean alludes to, he's going to be athletically very fit and he's going to be a very active, healthy looking dog. Same for cats and same for humans. If you're feeding that human the diet that he should be eating, you're not going to have to be peeing on a stick or checking your blood all the time. That, that's unnecessary and it's a waste of time and money. <clears throat> now, I think newcomers maybe need to do that for a month or two so they can kind of get the hang of this. As But in no way do I think that has to be a long-term part of a ketogenic lifestyle at all. And then secondly, keto coffee, bulletproof coffee, and fat bombs. So a lot of people misunderstand. They think there's some magic in that amount of fat. For the first month or two that people are keto, I think they might need a lot of fat in their coffee and they might need fat bombs in the fridge all the time because, so that they don't give in to that carb craving as they're kind of breaking that cycle of carbohydrate and sugar addiction. That probably serves a very useful purpose for, for at least some people who are converting to the ketogenic way. Uh, and I can tell you back when I first started this, man, I would have two tablespoons of butter and two tablespoons of MCT oil and a bunch of stevia in my coffee. Yeah, that was my standard for months and months and months. And then I thought, well, I, I kind of started thinking about this like you, like really it should be my performance. It should be my mental performance, my physical performance. That's really should be the gauge, not am I, is my, you know, is my ketone level, is it 3.0 or not? Because I think if it's above, 0.5, I think you're, you're, you're winning. That's really all you need to worry about. I don't think any higher than that means anything because as many experts have stated, if you're burning the ketones, then they're not gonna, there's not going to be a surplus of ketones. And so anything above 0.5 is probably fine. But as I went along this keto journey, now I put, uh, in the mornings, I'll put a teaspoon of grass-fed butter in my coffee and a bunch of salt. And that's my, that's my standard keto coffee now. And then when I was first doing this, I would eat four or five fat bombs every night because about 7 p.m. I would get this huge carbohydrate craving and would be in the kitchen like a literal zombie walking around looking in the cabinets and in the fridge because I was so used to having that, that cereal and milk every night for decades that I just felt like I needed something. And fat bombs helped me say no to that because we got teenage girls in the house. And so there's always some damn fruit loops or lucky charms or some crap somewhere that I could find. And fat bombs saved my ass back in the early days of keto. Now we haven't made fat bombs in a year, probably. We just we don't even think about that anymore because we don't need that. Because after you've had a, a two big fat ribeyes, food's the last thing on your mind. You're full. You're completely satiated. You don't need that snack here and there anymore. And so I think for people just starting keto, I, I hate it when there are authorities in this sphere who who you know, bad mouth fat bombs, because I think they really helped me there for a few months as I was converting to this, this way of eating and way of living. 
but I don't think fat bombs should be a permanent part of your, your keto. I don't think that's necessary. You at some point, not even that you need to wean it out. You're just going to naturally stop doing that because you don't need those, those constant snacks anymore. Yeah. I, I think when you look I'm, at I'm that stuff, that's like, of, I'm going to stop the butter and I'm going to just see if I can, if I can perform as well at the Berry clinic without the butter and I'm just going to have salty coffee and just see what that does. Uh, and see if my hunger stays at bay like it does with the teaspoon of butter in my coffee. But uh, yeah, I went from four tablespoons of fat to one teaspoon of fat over my ketogenic journey. And I went from having four or five fat bombs every night when I first started to not even having a fat bomb in the house for over a year now. Yeah, just to say, it seems like these things can be great tools, but it's when people take them from being a tool to being a, like a, a like a permanent crutch, it can become an issue. And, um, you know, when I'm talking to folks that are curious about using a high fat or ketogenic diet, uh, you know, for me, I'm working with usually endurance athletes. So like they'll, they'll want to like their goals can vary. Some people come in there, like they're at like the perfect weight for them and they're just looking to kind of see what happens if they feel better and things like that. And then there's other folks who say, well, my first goal is to lose 15 to 20 pounds. And then my next goal is to complete X race and stuff like that. And, um, when their goal is to, to lose a little bit of extra body fat, um, you know, that's where that can be a huge tool to kind of help that process along. Cause if they've spent a year following a ketogenic diet and every morning, they're having three, 400 calories of liquid fat in their coffee. It's pretty easy to remove all or most of that. And, you know, dip into those body fat reserves versus into that butter in the coffee and they may not even hardly notice it because they're still drinking that cup of coffee in the morning. It just doesn't have the half a stick of butter in there any longer. Right. Right. And I think the fat does play a useful purpose up front, but as you go along, obviously the goal for most people is to burn the fat on their ass and the fat in their liver and the fat in their belly. That's the ultimate goal. And so it's absolutely true. If you put a ton of fat in your coffee, you're going to have to burn that fat before you burn the fat that you're trying to burn. That's a fact you can't even argue with that. But what I use fat for now is a, is a hunger hack. I use it to hack my leptin and my ghrelin hormones so that I turn off my hunger. And also another thing that works great for that is just a pinch of salt on your tongue. If you're brand new to this way of eating and you're like, dude, I'm, I'm hungry, but I know I shouldn't really eat yet, a pinch of salt or a teaspoon of butter, and that will turn your hunger off. And then you didn't just eat a humongous amount of, of fat, but you're also not suffering. Because that's the beautiful thing about keto is you don't have to be hungry all the time, like on Biggest Losers, Loser Diet and Weight Watchers and Flexitarian. You don't have to starve every minute of every day. You also don't have to snack every two hours because you can use the fat as a hormonal hack. It's like the ultimate biohack when you do that because you get your leptin and your ghrelin hormones right exactly where they should be so you're not hungry at all. And you, you barely elevate your insulin level, if at all. And so you're still in ketosis. You're still burning that fat on your butt that you're trying to get to. And so using the fat as a strategic tool like that, I think, is very valuable. But more fat's not going to do that. You need just the minimal amount of fat to turn off the hunger. That's the whole point of the fat after a few but months. Ken, let me ask you about uh, sugar addiction. There's some people say there's no such thing. And then let's talk about the role of artificial sweeteners, where they, where they fit in, where they shouldn't fit in. And then the other thing I'd like you to talk about is either time-restricted feeding, fasting, extended fasting. How does that 
have a role? Are you supportive of that? Or how do you incorporate that? Yeah. Yeah. So sweeteners, there, there's this thing, which I'm sure you guys know about called the cephalic phase insulin response. And there's research that shows that this, this is a real thing. And it also is, it makes perfect ancestral sense. 5,000 years ago, if your taste buds sent something sweet in your mouth, there was 100% of the time there was about to be a carbohydrate load that you were about to swallow. And so it makes perfect evolutionary sense for your body. Your, your body does never want you to have hyperglycemia because that's very unhealthy, right? And so your brain's going to go ahead and say, hey, pancreas, start pumping out some insulin to be ready for those carbs so that we can use them to build, but also so we don't get the blood sugar above 110, 120, right? So it makes perfect ancestral sense that there would be a cephalic phase insulin response. And there's actually been research where, where they would give the participants of the study saccharin water and they didn't even swallow it. They would just swish it in their mouth for a minute, spit it out. That would elevate their insulin level, right? And so with that, with the ancestral logic of that and with the research of that, then we say, okay, well, what about stevia? What about monk fruit extract? What about these keto approved sweeteners it, and my answer is it depends if you're on keto right now and you're using stevia or monk fruit extract or, or xylitol and you're still progressing towards your health goals i think it's fine to keep using that but i think most people find i found it certainly and even nisha who loves her sweet coffee she's found we do better with no sweetener whatsoever. And I think that is the natural state for the human being for the, for 99.99% of our existence on this planet. We maybe had a sweet taste in our mouth once a year, twice a year, maybe, but there are, there were cultures that lived their entire life and would never taste something sweet, maybe once or twice in their entire 70 year life. And so what we're really trying to do is mimic their life because they were, I guarantee you, they all had six packs guaranteed and they could all chase you down and kick your ass if they had to, because they were the optimal human back then. Otherwise we would be extinct. I don't think anybody can really argue the logic of that. We had to be on our game back then. We had to be alert, acute and have a six pack and we couldn't be running around with beer, but beer guts back then, or we wouldn't reproduce. Right. And so I think those sweeteners, play a very meaningful role early in the ketogenic journey. But as you go along this, I think that hopefully naturally you just kind of lose the taste for it and you see the, the common sense of it. I don't need that. That's probably bumping my insulin up at least a little bit. And why would I want to do that? Right. But many people who are coming from the standard American diet, they got to have some kind of sweetener in their coffee or they'll die. Right. And that's fine. They can use the stevia because it probably doesn't bump your insulin as much as sugar. Probably true. But does it bump it some? Yeah, probably it does. And there needs to be more research about that. But I, my theory is, yeah, it does a little bit. And so if you stall on keto and you're stalled for six weeks or three months, you need to look at getting rid of all the sweeteners. You need to look, look at getting rid of every source of sweet taste in your mouth because I bet you that's bumping your insulin up and that's turning off your weight loss or whatever else your goal is on keto. And so I think that these sweeteners serve a useful role early in the keto game, but then later on down the road, you don't need those at all. And now on carnivore, I never, I never eat anything sweet. I don't put sweetener in my coffee, maybe once a month, just because I'm like, oh, I think I'll put a drop of stevia in there. But on the average day, I'll go my entire day and I never have anything sweet at all.
Ken, just to follow up part of that question that, that we, we asked you about the uh, role of fasting, time-restricted feeding. Mm, yeah. So I think that as you move back towards the proper human diet, which is some version of the ketogenic diet, whether that's veg-heavy keto, whether that's meat-heavy keto, or whether that's carnivore, you just tend to you migrate towards eating, oh, three meals a day and no snacks, then two meals a day and no snacks. And then uh, most carnivores I talk to, it's just one big meal a day. And that's what I've been eating. And every now and then I'll have a, another meal on the front or the back of my big meaty meal. But on the average day, I eat one big meal a day and that's it. And so I think the human body, I think that's probably our natural state. And so we tend, as we eat a more appropriate human diet we tend to move that direction but i also think that time restricted eating is a very powerful tool that people who are morbidly obese or type 2 diabetic they can implement that and and so keto plus intermittent fasting is the most powerful thing i've ever seen for type 2 diabetes and for morbid obesity there's nothing that works better that's more sustainable than time restricted eating and so for fasting at least 16 hours a day and then eating within an eight-hour window, and then when you do eat, eating fatty meat keto, there ain't nothing going to get the, the weight off faster than that other than just starving yourself, you know, going into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and not eat anything. Yeah, that's going to work. But who wants to do that? Who wants to suffer? And so when I say it's the most powerful tool, I also mean it's the tool where you, you suffer the least because we got to always honor human nature, right? And if something sucks bad enough for long enough, most humans going to quit it. I mean, that's just common sense, right? And so if I can give you a diet where you're not hungry, but yet you're keeping your insulin super low, normal all day, every day, you're going to lose a ton of weight on that. And you're going to stick to it because it's not that hard because you're not suffering every day. And so I think time-restricted eating is absolutely ancestrally appropriate. I think it makes perfect sense from the insulin model of obesity, and I'm a big proponent of it. Hey, Ken, let's say I'm a, I'm a hypothetical dude that rolls into your clinic. I'm, you know, I'm a 52-year-old guy. that has got about 40 pounds of weight to lose. My blood pressure's up. I'm either pre-diabetic or early diabetic. You know, I got you know, uh, maybe a little bit of get, touch of gout, uh, a little bit of depression. I'm on a couple meds. What what diet do you hand them a packet and say this is the diet I want you to follow and can you outline that you know just as yeah. a starting point what, what what do you include what do you not include how do you tell people to get started Yeah and so I've got a it's about a twenty page handout that it's basically just a food list of of keto friendly type things that you can eat and so the everything on that list is a thousand times less bad than what they've been eating before. And I actually, I've got a copy of it on my Facebook page. You can go and, and get a copy of it. But so, yeah, we'll have about a 20 minute conversation. I'll check a huge panel of lab work. And, and, and so I'll start talking about, you know, step one, remove all sugar, step two, remove all grains, step three, remove all vegetable oils. And those are the first three steps to regaining your health, no matter what diet you end up on, those are the first three big steps that you've got to do that. And so we talk about, you know, whole wheat bread is not better than white bread. Brown rice is not better than white rice. Brown sugar is not better than white sugar. We talk about all those kind of beginner mistakes that people like, you know, sweet potatoes. No, they're not better than, than Irish potatoes. A potato is a potato. It's full of starch. You've got to get that out of your diet. And so then I'll have him back in a couple of weeks. We'll go over his labs. We'll talk about his A1C, his C-peptide, and, 
and I, I usually check on lab panel. It's got about a hundred different things in it total. And we'll go over all that. And then in that two week checkup visit, he also has a bunch of new questions like, okay, what about this? What about that? What about this? You know, I'm using half and half in my coffee now instead of 2% milk. Is that okay? And I'm like, yes, that's less bad, but now let's go to heavy cream. Let's do that. And so I just, I, I don't try to move them abruptly because I think that's going to increase your failure rate if you do that. And so I just slowly, but surely every visit we're, we're moving towards fatty meat keto is where I'm trying to move everybody. And if that turns out to be, vegetarian keto with them eating eggs and 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 oysters that's fine with me i don't care because that's still a thousand damn times better than the shit they were eating before right and then it or if it winds up carnivore that's also fine with me because that's ten thousand times better than the shit they were eating before and so each time we we visit i'm going to lower a blood pressure medicine i'm going to stop that statin right off the bat we're going to stop the farziga and all these other stupidly expensive type 2 diabetic injections that don't help anybody we're going to keep, we're going to stop the glyburide, the glomeruli, all that crap. We might keep him on metformin. We might not, just depending on how hardcore keto he wants to go. And then within six months, this guy's going to have so much weight off and his numbers are going to be so much better that people that he knows at work and, and people he hasn't spoke to in years are going to be coming up to him saying, dude, what are you doing? You look great. Okay, let me uh, speak to labs. Let's talk about uh, cardiac risk because a lot of people going to ketogenic diet or carnivore diet they'll notice that their LDL cholesterol goes up not all of them but some do and how do you put that into perspective for people do you do you say let's look at the big picture let's look at all these things and, and, and do that you put them on statins what what is your how do you manage that that particular subset of the population that we know it we know it happens to I know some people call it lean mass hyper responders that's a Dave Feldmanism but uh, what do you see with with that population and what are your thoughts well, I start off very gently with this. I, I'm not a I'm not a preacher. I'm I'm very gentle about moving people because you know, the doctor who they grew up being their doctor has preached this to them. So if I just say that's stupid, stop that right now, I'm going to turn them off, right? Because I just basically this is a an elder in their tribe who I've just said is stupid, and so I try not to do any of that kind of stuff. I try to be very gentle and very loving about this, and I say, hey, here's this video by Dr. David Diamond. I want you to go watch it. It's on my YouTube channel. Go watch that video. Here's a here's a, a paper. If they're a reader, I'll give them a paper, you know, like the review article that uh, that David Diamond was one of the co-authors of, and say there's really no research that LDL or total cholesterol means anything bad, and in fact, they probably are good for you. And I'll tell you, me personally, my total cholesterol last time I checked it was 350, and my LDL was 250. And so I'm very happy with that. I'm actually very happy with that because I think that's very protective uh, against Alzheimer's dementia and many of the other chronic diseases of getting older. I don't feel like I'm at risk for those. But I'll tell you why I don't think I have any risk factors for heart disease because my triglycerides are very, very low. My HDL is very, very high. My A1C is very low normal. My C-peptide is normal. All my inflammatory markers are normal. And that's why I try to start the gentle education process that maybe what Dr. McGillicuddy has been telling you for the last 10 years, maybe he's, he's, a, he's a sweetheart. I love him, but I don't think he's right about that. Go watch this video. And so every time I'm able, I have an interaction with that patient, I'll move them kind of on the lipid spectrum, more towards thinking of having high cholesterol is a blessing and not a curse because I fully believe if someone has a, a low triglycerides and high HDL and has a very low A1C, 
I think that's probably about as safe from heart disease as you could be. Yeah, that, that, that's controversial, what you said. And there's a lot of people it that is, yeah. are heretic and, you know, you need to be burned at the stake and, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, yep. and so forth. And, and, you know, there's, you know, it's kind of an interesting time. You know, we, we, we are, you know, it's, be, it's become a food fight for sure. I mean, it's a religious war almost. And, it is, uh, yeah. you know, and, and unfortunately, I think it has to be at this point. I mean, we've got so much, what I want to call propaganda that's been out there, you know, with this, this crazy stuff. We get people like the, the PETA, PETA folks putting out this. I mean, you know, you look what they put out now, and it's just 100% outright lies that they, right. that they put out there. And, and, and no, one even, no one even questions that. It's, it, it's just right. it's ridiculous. And so, unfortunately, I think we as a community – have got to step up our game, have got yeah. to bring a gun to a gunfight and stop being polite and stop saying, well, let's wait for the studies. And, and, and right. you know, there is, you know, unfortunately, you know, in politics, whoever has the loudest, me you know, megaphone carries a day. And That's it, right. doesn't, it doesn't matter what the truth is. It's just what people hear over and over again. And so I think we should learn that lesson and, you know, stand up and, you know, get out there and be vocal about this. And I think if we right. don't, you know, woe is to, you know, woe is us if we don't do that, because, you know, you see what these people at Eat Lancet are proposing for the world and, and going to push those, you know, try to legislate us to eat human pet food is what I call it. And I mean, it's exactly I, right. Yeah, that's exactly what it's going to be. And, yeah. it, and, you know, and they'll be able to actually formulate it into a human kibble that you'll be able to buy in a 50 pound bag that will literally become a thing. And you, instead of dropping off food to starving people, you'll drop them ba bags of human food, 50 pound bags that you can stack up on pallets. And that's, that is, that's human kibble. You're exactly right. That's coming. And, but I think we've got a tool now that doctors in the past did not have, and we've got social media. And so uh, doctors like me and doctors like you, we've got to be completely transparent. And that's why every six months I check all my lab work and I post all my lab work on my Facebook page. And I'm, I'm going to get a CIMT. I'm going to get a, a coronary artery calcium score. And I'm going to share all that. Even if it's good or bad, I'm going to share it on my Facebook page and on social media. Because one of the things that they used against Dr. Adkins back in the day, I've studied him in detail because he's, got, he's kind of the guy that started all this. They would say, oh, he's full of shit. He doesn't eat that way. He doesn't eat that. He's lying to you, right? But now people can go look at my Instagram story right now and they can go see the rack of ribs I ate last night. And so you basically remove the obfuscation and the dishonesty. For, no, you can't say Sean Baker's lying because he posted that ribeye on, on Instagram. And unless you think that he, he spent $12 for that ribeye and then he went and ate a bowl of granola, I don't think he did that. I think he probably ate that ribeye. And does that make sense? And so you, they can't accuse us of being this. Well, they can, but it doesn't stick is my point. The average guy on Twitter or the average guy on Facebook is like, no, that's bullshit. I saw his plate on Instagram last night. He ate a rack of ribs, and there were two tomatoes on there. And when he was done eating, he put one of the ribs as a smiley face and the two tomatoes as eyes and said, happy plate. That's on his Instagram right now. So you can't say that that dude didn't eat an entire rack of ribs. He did. And here's his lab work. Look at his A1C. That, all that fatty meat did not make him a diabetic. It actually made his A1C 5.1, which is great, right? And so I think social media – pulls back the curtain and they can't they can't play a lot of reindeer games they used to be able to play on doctors like us because we're completely transparent and that's how we have to be in order for people to believe in us 
Well, and Sean, Sean even took it a step further and did the meat talk Instagram video. So you, you could actually physically see him <laughs> chew and swallow the meat. So there's that's no right. going yeah, away I actually in swallow, that I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't spit, he swallows. That's absolutely right. And so, yeah, there's all this stuff where you can't deny that, that he is a meat eater. He eats meat and he can lift more than you and your mama and your daddy all put together. So somehow it's, it's, he doesn't have scurvy. Somehow he doesn't have sarcopenia. We may not know the exact mechanism, but there he is right there breaking records. And so shut up. Yeah, no, I think, I think that is important. And it's, it's, it's refreshing to see more and more physicians, you know, sort of taking this up. Uh, you know, I, you know, and again, we, we kind of live in a bit of an echo chamber or a bubble and we don't know what the overall effect is, but it seems to be expanding. It seems to be growing. Is it going to be enough? Is it going to be too little too late? I don't know. Uh, you know, but all I can say is for folks listening out there that, that have the capacity, you know, to make an impact, you need to do it. We need all of you. We need every yes. single person that cares about the yep. future. And not only your future, but the future of your children or your children's children, because what's right. happening, you're seeing this, you know, orchestrated softening up of the population, getting people prepared to accept this message, to accept this human pet food future. You know, the, 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 the people from the Wally cartoon, you know, where they're, they're hovering around in their hover chairs, sucking down their soil and slop and, and being all, you know, obese and sick and waiting to be uploaded into the singularity because their, 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 their physical existence just sucks. Uh, that is a future that, you know, it doesn't, it's not as far fetched as, as you might seem, as it might seem. And I think we can do some, this is when people look back 50 years ago, the decisions that we make today and what we're willing to do, you know, they talk about world war two as the greatest generation. Well, our generation, you know, for us that are still in it, they're so active. This time is going to have an impact for many, many, many years to come and, and on future generations yeah, for decades, for decades, absolutely. But it's, you got to act today. You can't wait. You can't be passive. That's right. You know, we've already yeah. been late to the game. We're about twenty years late to the game, and we got to step up now. We got to step up hard. Absolutely, and and everybody has the power to change the world now that we have social media. And so, I'm sure you guys have long term listeners to this podcast who have just never thought to share this podcast a single time. And that kind of crap's got to stop. If you believe in this, if it's helped your health, the way you pay Sean Baker back is to share this podcast. Share it on whatever social media. Tell your buddy about it. Send somebody a text message. But if you're not doing that, you're not really helping in the big picture. You're just kind of you're kind of getting the benefits, but you're not passing it on. And it's time for, for people to stop being passive consumers and to say, hey, this changed my life. Carnivore changed my life. And I believe in what Sean Baker and Dr. Perry are doing. And I'm about to share this with everybody who will listen. That's the kind of stuff that's going to help us. Because you're right, we're 20 years late to this game. I mean, Walter Willett's been working on this for 20 years, been planning this. And so if we're ever going to step up and be able to protect not only our children, but our grandchildren and great-grandchildren from the stupid bullshit that comes out of the Harvard School of Nutrition, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to be a little bit of an apostle and a, and a preacher. You're going to have to share this stuff. And so you need to be sharing this podcast if you haven't already. You heard it. Share it. <laughs> yeah, subscribe. Rate the damn podcast. Give us five stars. Get our rankings up there, guys. No, Ken, it's been great, man. We, you know, I, I think we could go for hours on this stuff and keep oh, yeah. hanging out. I, I look forward to seeing you. I know, I know there's some people talking about going out to – 
friggin' Bosnia or Herzegovina. Have you heard anything about that? Something, something along those lines? No, what's up with that? There's well, going to be a conference? There's going to be a conference, and I know they, they sort of tentatively talked to me, and they said they were going to ask you maybe to come out there uh, in a summer. Oh, yeah, it's the, it's the Greek guy. Yeah, he, Greek but he, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, so I'm, I'm down. Let's if do you're it. Down, I'm down. We'll go. We'll hang out. We'll, we'll, we'll crush some steaks and, 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 and plan – to uh plan the revolution man <laughs> yeah we may not ever be able to be allowed to leave europe but we'll sure the heck get in there <laughs> yeah that's true man all right guys well i'll tell you what this has been great uh zach can't let us know where the hell to find you let the folks know and and so we can we can you know keep getting this stuff spread around and uh uh zach any last minute words uh no thanks thanks for coming on ken it has been great i think this one is uh equal parts informative and entertaining so i'll look forward to get this one up but uh definitely yeah, share where our listeners can find you and also link some of those channels to the show notes so i've got uh, uh lies my doctor told me is going to be out soon for pre-order and it's uh victory belts publishing it so it's going to be in all bookstores not just amazon coming up in within a month probably it'll be available for pre-order and then I do a ton of, I try to do at least two YouTube videos a week on my YouTube channel. I've got over 200 videos there now that you can go, can go and start watching for free. I do a ton of work on Facebook. Nisha and I do a Facebook Live every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Answer tons of questions, tackle a different topic every Sunday. I'm on Instagram. I play around there. And then if I'm, if I'm feeling like a smartass, I'll jump on Twitter and say something snarky and piss all the vegans off. <laughs> you know, the one I just just back to an early comment. You know, you said you got uh, who's the fellow from Two Keto Dudes? Uh, Carl, Carl Lenore, is he going to read? Carl them? Franklin, yes, or Carl Franklin rather. So, so yeah. they, they didn't want a damn hillbilly redneck reading the audio on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, they actually. Everybody said I should read it, but dude, I have the worst attention deficit. In I'm, I don't even know how I wrote the book. First of all, <laughs> but then to have to have to sit down and sit still and read my own writing. That, that is the literal definition of torture to me. Like, I, I can't do that. And so Carl Franklin volunteered, and I'm like, oh, hell yeah, you can read it. And so he's working on that now. And then I'll probably, I'll probably have an introduction or something, you know, just, just so I could have my voice on it. But I, I, to sit down and read my own writing, that I, could, I would rather die than do that. Yeah, I mean, I've, so, got this, I've got the same deal with mine. That, you know, they want a voice. They want a voice cop. And I'm thinking I'm reading it, and I'm like, Man, I, I would probably just want to want to ad lib all the time. Like, yeah, but this would really. Right. Means. I don't know if I can stick to this reading the text. So it's kind of interesting. So that's cool, man. Exactly, exactly. But that's where I do the bulk of my work. Work on social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't do any. I don't. I don't spend any time there. I'm. I'm trying to help the most people on YouTube and Facebook, and then a little bit on Instagram and Twitter. That's where you can find me. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Zach, what else we got? Anything? I think that's it. Thanks again for coming on, Ken. We'll get this one up and uh, share it out to as many people as we can. I love it, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.